I think it's number one really important to understand what you're doing and why you're doing it and, and then it's really just breaking the picture down into smaller goals and achievable amounts. It's finding ways to look forwards. It's looking at what you can do rather than focusing on what you can't. Sometimes you feel rotten, you know, day two and three of that journey were horrific, like horrific winds. And, and I was thinking, OK, I have to do 50 kilometres a day into this stuff, otherwise, otherwise I'm not going to get to the finish. Kate Lemming is one of the world's most extraordinary people. She is an insatiable explorer, an adventurer, and an esteemed storyteller. As a world-renowned cyclist, Kate's expeditions have seen her ride tens of thousands of kilometres, overcoming unimaginable challenges on a journey toward the greater good. In total, Kate has cycled a distance greater than twice the Earth's circumference crossing landscapes as diverse and unforgiving as the Siberian wilderness, the vast plains of Africa, and the harsh Australian desert. On today's episode, we explore Kate's approach to the impossible and her unwavering determination to overcome it. How did you choose the bike as your medium, though, I guess is the big question. Because when you were starting out, you said a, a bit of a journey of discovery around Europe about you know, wanting to see it in a slightly different way. But there were many mediums you could have chosen to have that first sort of foot-in-the-water moment. It could have been running, it could have been walking, it could have been in a car. But you chose to cycle. Where, where did that come from? It's a very humble form of travel. And people tend to just really appreciate the fact that you're making such an effort to see their part of the world. And especially when I was in Europe, where cycling is such an important part of culture you know, in France and Spain and Italy and, and further afield. But, but they just, like, you know, they'll go out of the way to help you. It's, it, it's, it's amazing. So it brings out very 99.9% .9 of the time it brings out the best in people. Um, and it's a very safe form of travel, actually, because... Um, because of that, people don't think you're wealthy, usually, apart from in certain uh, uh, developing places in the world. But, but people don't think you're wealthy and they generally perceive even a woman on a bicycle, they, they tend to perceive that you're a strong person uh, who has enough confidence to do it. So you end up getting respect. Yeah, there's a couple of silly people here and there, but, but you just ignore those and keep, keep, keep moving on, really. There's always that barrier, isn't there, when you're in a car? Like you, you, you're in your own little capsule and in some ways you're experiencing the world around you, but you're completely separate to it as well. It's a very protected and enclosed thing. Whereas when you're cycling, you're in the elements. In a way, being in the elements also means that you're with the people who are in those elements as well, aren't you? Like you can stop at any time, interact with people as you're waving past them. They feel like comfortable, I imagine, in sort of stopping you too or at least having more of a conversation with you when you're sort of in that environment. It's a very connected experience, I could imagine. Tell me about some of the nicest experiences you've had with people just serendipitously on the side of the road as a consequence of riding, some of the ones that sort of stand out to you. I imagine there's been many over the years. It might be hard to single something out, but have there been any sort of that sort of characterise that feeling of, of being connected to the people you're around? 
I could I could go to any single journey that I've done and, and probably give you a, give you stories. I'm trying to think. I'm still honed into Europe. So if I was thinking of that, especially when I was cycling up to the Nordcap, the far north, the most northerly point in, in Norway and going up through the Arctic regions, you know, I always the more remote the places, the friendlier the people, um, pretty much. Um, and like I was on the Lofoten Islands, which are well above the Arctic Circle, and I was having a terrible time because it was July, I think. It was July, August, and it should have been summer, and the, you know, the midnight sun was out, out when you could see it. Um, it had been raining, and, and just because of the wind chill, I ended up getting a bit of frost nip on my fingers, and I'd stopped. I was wearing marigolds on my gloves to protect, to keep the wind off because I, I didn't have anything, and I wasn't quite prepared for the for that situation then so so I had just covered them over with marigolds and I was probably looking a bit bedraggled and I walk into a, a a shop and this woman who obviously the Norwegians are pretty good travelers and she'd traveled all sorts of places in the world all around the world mostly on ships and she just just um I went around to, to get some food because I was obviously looking a bit hungry and I ended up you know she said oh, well here take this you know 200 grams of chocolate and here's 20 20 kroner to get yourself a decent meal and here's this and here's that and I wasn't even allowed to pay for anything you know um, those kind of things just happen I don't expect them to happen you shouldn't expect them to happen but but it draws the kindness out of people there's there's a commonality of, of experience isn't it when you you go to meet people in their own homes in their own environments and and there's that that sense I think that we all feel that we just we just want people to enjoy it as much as we do where they come to somewhere where we live and I, I think that's such a universal human experience you know it's that natural instinct that we want to welcome people um, and show them you know what a wonderful place it is particularly when they've made such an effort to get there and I guess sometimes we lose that a little bit sort of in a bigger city but in those regional centers I imagine that's a very very strong feeling when when they don't often see people coming to those places and maybe not shining a light on their their experiences and, and their life. Yeah, I mean, everywhere, I mean, even in like, say, for example, I could go Russia, I could go Australia, say the Australian outback, for example, you know, coming through, you know, I, I did 25,000 kilometres through Australia, 7,000 actually on remote desert tracks. And I remember, you know, I had a few connections in the north, you know, from Derby to Broome, and then a couple of connections on stations. And I ended up working it out from Broome to Perth, I only had to camp wild maybe four times. The rest of the time is is like I, I drop in at a station. I'm, I'm very good at sort of I, I can talk farms and stations and agriculture with people pretty well. Mm. So they'd, they'd pick me up like I, I'd have a sat phone and I'd say I'm here at your front gate and they would, they'd come and collect me and you know, drive 30 or 40 kilometers out <laughs> to the front gate to get me, uh, have a fantastic meal and wine or whatever and then sleep there and then they'd put me on back out, out the, the front gate the next morning and I'd cycle another 100, 150 k's to the next place because they'd, they'd phoned up their neighbours down the road and I had this running all the way down pretty much bar a couple of places. I had it running all the way down to, to Perth essentially past different, you know, different connections and things. My great-grandfather was a drover in sort of the early 19th century and um, and sort of a family mythology that's passed through sort of a, a story to us was he used to carry a suit in his saddlebag because everywhere he went um, on homesteads, they'd always be invited in for dinner and you'd always want to wear something nice and so you'd have the suit. And so I've always sort of, you know, imagined this, uh, you know, there's this wonderful uh this wonderful sense of community in in remote places where you know like you can just be welcomed into people's homes and you know go and experience that it's sort of extraordinary to think that that still happens today like i think we think of that as sort of a, a bit of an archaic thing but of course it's not you know it's just that i wasn't carrying a suit though chris <laughs> <laughs> i was going to ask but, uh... not, not quite <laughs> You're friendly and look people in the eye, and you know um, you obviously look interesting to them because you've come from somewhere interesting, and you must have some interesting stories to tell and 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 a purpose in what you're doing. And it's embarrassing in Siberia. That was back in 1993, and cycling across Russia, you know these people. You know this is when communism was breaking down, and just for the first time, you know had 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 an opportunity to cross the whole of. Russia before parts were closed 
people would welcome us in and they didn't have much but they would share what they had and and you know the winter was coming on and we're in the swamp there's 1500 kilometers of swamp and this, we had to follow the railway tracks so there were no roads in and out of there in the summer um, and so we were following the railway track and winter tracks and when they went under water we'd be back on the railway line so cars can't get couldn't get through where we got through and and so we, we, we would somehow appear out of the swamp to these people. And there was just like no hesitation. Um, it did help that I was a woman in that case, I think. And I was traveling then with a Russian guy and a, and a British guy. And, and just having me there was probably meant even less threat than the two guys because it was usually the women who opened the door and made the decisions on who stayed or whatever. So we had little tricks as well. We'd either, we'd sometimes knock on the door and ask if we could buy some milk and they'd go and milk their cow for us. And that often ended up in opening a bottle of vodka and can you stay the night sort of thing. Um, or we'd, we'd ask in a village and we'd, we'd ask for the leader of the village to, so because in the swamp everything was wet, you couldn't really camp. So the, the, the leader, the mayor or whomever would always look after us, find us a place to stay, whether it was a shop front, shop or whatever. So we'd always find somewhere to stay, which was amazing. You know, you put your faith in the people and it comes back in spades. That journey, that Trans-Siberian journey, uh, is sort of an extraordinary thing on, on so many levels. Because one, as you suggest, it was only just after the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. So it was very much a new Eastern Bloc that was gaining a new sense of identity and trying to re-establish its purpose after the fall of the Soviet Union. And of course, there's a great deal of turmoil that comes with you know, any massive change like that, but I think particularly in that region at that particular time. Uh, but two, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was one of the first major expeditions that you'd taken. You'd obviously done a huge amount of cycling before then, but this was an organised expedition with a purpose. Um, and uh, in a way, I guess it was more planned than perhaps what you'd been doing through Europe before. Is, is that correct? Um, so as you uh, identify, yeah, you, it was just just possible to do what we did. Um, and and so the, there wasn't any good information that was before computers. You know, so the way I started organising that was that I, the, the British Cycle Tourist Club had, had a list of Russian cycling clubs. So I wrote them all letters and said I, was, you know, I needed some people to cycle with me to help with language and the whole thing ended up being that I, I ended up meeting um, very quite a well-known polar explorer, a guy called Robert Swan, who's the first person to have walked to both the North and South Poles. And when I had this idea about the Russian expedition, uh, he sort of gave me the confidence to step it up and to raise funds. So I chose to raise funds for the children affected by the Chernobyl disaster. And, and he also connected me to Dr. Misha Malakov, a, a fellow polar explorer, a really amazing fellow. And he was, Misha was just trying to set up his own businesses in uh, in, in Russia, like a, a sort of a cent, um, tourism to the North Pole and that kind of thing. So I met Misha when he came to London and then and then we, we got it off. He was a little bit like a, a Russian version of Sylvester Stallone, I think, a bit of a Russian <laughs> Rocky, this guy. Um, he invited me over to the, his city where they come from, a place called Razan, which is 200 kilometres south of Moscow. Um, this was before the expedition, and I ended up having a deal with that company. And this is talking about risk. This was how we mitigated the risks and made things work. I wanted to always have a, a cyclist with us who spoke Russian so we could avoid running into danger, so we could avoid danger, deal with, say, changing money, that kind of thing, where we could just be taken advantage of. So we supplied the bikes and all the equipment. Um, Misha's company, Centerpole, basically was the base, and so we had some spares sitting there. Um, uh, then, you know, the idea, because it was pre-sort of communications pretty much, I had to send a telegram every week to Misha to let them know that I was okay. So that was, our, that was the only way we could get messages out in 1993 um, that was reliable. You know, every week we we sent we sent the the, the telegram, um, and when my bike did split its rim in the middle of Siberia, we had a plan. I had a spare bike back at Razan, so it was a phone call to the going to the local telephone exchange, making the call, to then someone from Centerpole had to drive 200 kilometres up to Moscow by a flight by a ticket. 
fly to Krasnoyarsk and then take a train for another 120 kilometers to get to where we were at this village called Uya. And four days later, I had the spare wheel. There's no way it could have been fixed. And mountain bikes were not the thing in Russia at that time. So it was kind of like that was the system that worked. So it was pretty cool. I guess for the people who haven't come across you yet, Kay, can you give us a bit of a rundown of the journeys that you have made, sort of the overall arc of it since then? Because it's it's truly astounding what you've been able to achieve. And I just think it would be better if you maybe in your own terms you could outline for people what that first meeting with Robert Swan has led to. So that was that's called the Trans-Siberian Cycle Expedition. That was 1993, so I'm the first woman to have cycled across the whole of Russia from St. Petersburg to Vladivostok, which was done... Uh, in five months, and we arrived a day ahead of schedule after that five months. Um, then 10 years later, so I became a real tennis professional in between all of that, but then 10 years later, back in Australia, I organised the Great Australian Cycle Expedition, which is 25,000 kilometres through my own country, starting and finishing Canberra, and that was an official activity at the start of the UN Decade of Education for Sustainable Development. So it's my first attempt to create a little education programme, um, and it was also a way of really understanding how my own country fits together because, you know, I, I, I grew up in the southwest corner. I'd been to most cities to play sport but not experienced it. I'd, I'd experienced other parts of the world and I wanted to see how my own country matched up. So that was the personal side. Then stepping it up even further, I organised Breaking the Cycle in Africa. And I'd always wanted to go to Africa, but I previously didn't have the confidence. And also, you know, a lot of people said, oh, Africa is a dangerous place. You're going to die over there. It's like they have no idea. People cycle there. It's got, it's got to be a way to do it. So the breaking the cycle in Africa was a 22,000-kilometer journey from the most westerly tip in Senegal to the most easterly tip in Somalia, going through 20 different countries. And it I did it in 299 days, so I arrived four days ahead of schedule after 10 months. And this time, I was exploring the causes and effects of extreme poverty. So I wasn't just cycling. I was trying to sort of create a very grounded story about the issues relating to poverty as well as Africa, the real Africa, in 2010. So it was, um, it was the most amazing and life-changing expedition I've done. Uh, that was the first time I've really travelled supported, uh, which had all sorts of other issues to, trying to find people who, who, who were right for that because um, we were filming it. When it got to the stage where you had a support vehicle and suddenly you had sort of a camera crew or at least you had some people who were documenting what you were doing and, and sort of almost living that parallel life to what you were really experiencing, was, was that a bit surreal? Like, did it take some time to get used to that and to figure out how that was going to fit into your own journey? Sounds strange, but I find... Travelling supported harder in many ways than travelling unsupported because travelling unsupported, I'm only responsible for myself uh, 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 or, or if I'm travelling with someone else unsupported as well and, and, and we don't rely on a support team. Now, that vehicle's not next to me all the time as often, and especially in Africa. You know, I could cycle 100 kilometres with no support team but, but the trouble is with that is, is, is like I'm not equipped to survive without them. So if they don't show up at the right times with water and that kind of thing, you know, I've got to plan systems that so that I don't get into trouble and, 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 and sometimes I've lost them and things like that. So, we, you know, we lost each other in the Namib Desert, which wasn't good because the wind erased the tracks. So the Namib is actually the whole way down the Namibian coastline and a little bit into, like, it's very long, but there's the Namib Sand Sea, which is there's 500 kilometres, basically, where there are no roads. And there was a peninsula called Sandwich Harbour and a sort of peninsula going out, and the idea was to cut the peninsula off and then keep heading down the coast. Um, and the guide at that point said, OK, you can set off early, you know, we're not going to follow the coast anymore. We're going to cut through here and we'll catch you up. And just had to go back over a clay pan and then up over this dune and you'll be able to follow the vehicle tracks. So I sort of did that, set off, uh, 
got to the top of the dune, there were no vehicle tracks. I was, Am I stupid here? There are no vehicle tracks anywhere. So, but then I could see through the, over to the, the next dune, I thought I could see some vehicle tracks. So I went down and up the so steep slopes. And this is getting up the steep slopes is actually lifting, carrying a bike. It's not, <laughs> it's not simple. Um, thought I could see a couple more tracks in the distance, so I followed that. And I th then I thought, okay, there's no tracks here, but I, I can basically, when I get to the top of the dunes, I can see the sea. I, I was working just out and I thought, they must, you know, see me. They must be able to catch, see my tracks. Um, so they started uh, probably 45 minutes after me, I think. And, and I thought, well, they'll just catch me because they'll see my tracks. Um, the issue is for me was really water. So, you know, I had, I had a couple of bottles. So I was just rationing that, thinking, okay, just, just go steady. Um, keep getting towards the sea because I thought if I get to the, the main beaches then they're going to find me and that was the best way so that was my rational thinking but I kept zigzagging like these are massive dunes um, with clay pans and it was getting pretty hot um, so then eventually I sort of edged towards this massive clay pan and then I, I spotted them in the distance and they were I didn't realize how they were totally worried because they they thought I should have gone down this track. So it was a lack of communication. And so I wasn't panicking. I, I, I just worked out what that needed to be. That's a really important point. You weren't, you weren't panicking, but at the same time, you're carrying your bike up massive dunes in the desert without enough water, not knowing where your support crew were. I think that's a situation where a lot of people would very reasonably start to feel quite anxious. So what was it that allowed you to, to refocus in that moment? And I'm sure in many other moments, back on just the task at hand, the logical steps that needed to be taken, the things you could control, those you couldn't control. Where, where did you find that in yourself or what allowed you to train yourself to do that? Certainly things, you know, that's not the first time I've had, had situations like that. Um, just It's just, um, I, don't, I don't know what, you know, you've got to hang in there and you've got to think what's the best chance of finding them how are we going to find them what you know so so to me logically if I keep heading towards the beach I'm going to cross the peninsula and they're going to have to find me there because that's where we're supposed to be going yeah the rest of it I couldn't I couldn't really say that it's, it's just you do what you have to do I sometimes wonder how much of it is personality uh, or sort of built into us from our upbringings and, and where we've experienced our lives and how much of it is trainable and coachable because these sorts of extraordinary feats require a certain type of person, I think, a certain headspace uh, in order to just become feasible in the first instance. And, and I wonder, you know, to what degree people can aspire to do things like this if they don't perhaps already intrinsically have some of those traits that you're describing. Certainly background helps. So so for me growing up on a on a farm, um, that's was you know, it was four kilometers to the front gate and um, you know, even as a kid, you know, I can remember because the school bus used to drop us off, pick us up, forty five minute to an hour drive into school, nearest neighbours five kilometers away. Bus drops us off, you know, grade one, six years or five and a half years old. February day, <laughs> um, and and you know grandfather forgets to come down, you know drive down and pick us up, and so after you wait and wait and wait, then you know I had to think, okay, got to walk home. How do you know little kid? First, get to the first sheep trough, get some water, get the lunchbox. I mean, you learn to cope with things, and and so even from that might be ingrained, you know, open. I knew how to open the the lid to get to the water. Uh, had a drink, get to the next sheep trough, same thing, finally get nearly get home, you know, and it, just here, then he's realised he's forgotten to pick us up. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's just a little example, but, but um, y you know, you get on with it. Um, that, that was logical. I knew how to, knew enough to, to do that. I think having a sporting background all the way through, you know, a sort of state rep or standard in four different sports, but just being able to learn how to compete, I think it also hones at, at a high level and, and, and probably I was more competitive than everyone else and I worked out how to win at a very young age in a lot of athletics and different things. I learnt at about the age of 10 there were certain moments that I 
switched into, oh, okay, I can go to another gear here. I, I, I learned to focus internally and, and, and to get better results. You almost have to be in those situations, don't you? It's like a cumulative uh, effect of, uh, of building trust in your own capability. It's like you probably wouldn't have been as confident in dealing with that situation in the Namib Desert if it hadn't been for the fact that you'd already done the Trans-Siberian Expedition, you'd already done the trips across Europe, you're already a professional sportswoman with a great deal of success. Like you, you, you knew that your physical and mental capability was up to the task to, to deal with that situation. And, and in, that was a learnt trust, wasn't it, in yourself, really? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's that sort of situation, but there are, there's lots of times when I think people that I've had that, you know, whether it's dealing with the potential uh, chance of there being lions somewhere and you're thinking, okay, you know, what's the plan here? Or, or if it's traveling with, you know, military units going through war zones, again, it, it's kind of these surreal moments Think. Shit! <laughs> How am I here cycling across the Somali? You know, it's like the Nadabor Plain, and there's a war, there's a conflict going on. Just you know, we've got three government, two government ministers, and a, and the security um, specialist with us in bulletproof vehicles. I've got a full, like a full military unit, and I'm riding my bike. Hi everyone. Just a quick word before we continue with this week's episode. If you'd like to get involved with the show, follow us on Instagram by searching The Risk Equation Podcast. In the coming weeks, we'll be offering followers the chance to ask questions of our guests. So be sure to follow us over there to get involved and have your question featured on the show. As well, in support of Kate and her incredible work, please visit breakingthecycle.education to learn about her programs and to contribute to her next expedition across the South Pole. Breaking the Cycle South Pole serves to build on Kate's commitment towards ending extreme poverty, supporting education, gender equality, and protecting the environment. Again, that's breakingthecycle.education and leaming underscore Kate on Instagram. Now back to this week's show. Tell me about that trip when you were requiring the military escort and you had the government ministers with you. That, that sounds like an extraordinary group of people to be traveling through the center of Africa. Can you, can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah. Uh, so obviously you can't just go into Somalia. You can't just come across the border. It didn't happen like that. One of the, the, the best systems I had for my whole main African expedition, so the 22,000K one, was that I'd connected with Australian resource companies that had, had interests in the countries where I was planning to go. And and that worked to an absolute T. So I chose countries in particular that were potentially the, the most dangerous and, and, and difficult. And those resource companies have always got had good dealings with the governments. They have their Mr. Fix-It people that can make things happen, get visas. They have local intelligence and knowledge about security where it's needed. They can help us with security where needed. So that that really, really, really worked, in particular right through some of the, the Sahel regions. And then we also had bases in ugly African cities. So we had places to stay and sort of bases to do all the communications and the catch-up work. So it, it really ran smoothly. So I had I had military escorts in a couple of places, one through the Republic of Congo, also little escorts in uh, going to Alata. So that was in Mauritania and also in Niger. Back to um, Somalia, so I had a connection with an Australian resource company that was doing some exploration in Puntland, which is like a, a state of Somalia where the most easterly tip is. Several of the Puntland government, which is like a state government, five of them at the time were Australian Somalis who had basically left Puntland during when the war broke out in the early 90s. And some of them were taken in by Australia, and they were very bright people who did their doctorates, and they were highly educated people. And they'd all chosen to go back to serve their country. And I got to meet in Melbourne the Minister for Resources, 
and we had a chat and we we made a plan and then three months out from uh, ISSA started mobilising the whole Puntland government and also a fellow sort of colleague in Somaliland which is the northwestern part of Somalia where I where I had to go through as well. So he got all these people on side and I kept doing everything as I said on time so I, I then got to the border with through Ethiopia into the border with Somaliland to go into Hagisa. And the first person, Omar, drove out with two security guards. So there's less risk in Somaliland, but still they weren't taking any chances. And he was part of the Somaliland government, although he was in opposition. Um, So Omar looked after us for all of the time through Somaliland. And then we had to arrange like a crossover into Puntland, which was there's a whole no man's land there, 130 kilometres of it, uh, which you can't <laughs> go through. That's ethically aligned with Puntland and and claimed by Somaliland. And there's like, yeah, it's it was quite a tricky thing. So the Puntland government was going to support me. The president is actually an Australian Somali. So they arranged for the safe passage through that no man's land. And then the bulletproof vehicles, basically I was accompanied by that were the property of the mining company, but they were able to use them for this journey. So there were two bulletproof vehicles and always a military unit. Um, three days before I came in to cross the border into Puntland, uh, I heard that they'd had to initiate a conflict with Al-Shabaab, which are the extremists, who were controlling southern Somalia, where Mogadishu is, uh, uh, the federal government had virtually no control at the time, but they'd also set up started to set up training camps in Puntland. And so the Puntland government wanted to sort of blast them out and get rid of them before they came to, became too powerful. So so that was just, throw, just thrown into it. That was what was going on. And so the situation was so fluid with everything, we just had to go with it. And all of those experiences that I've talked about, talk, you know, negotiating with Misha or other people, it, it happened all over, you know, all over again here. But but here we've got probably even more different uh, cultures, uh, and and uh, so so when we got to Garraway, which is the capital of Puntland, just the other side of the no man's land, that was a one day sort of ride, and and then you know I was the guests of of the president, and you know had the official meeting and a bit of dinner, but all at the time he's totally on edge because because he's getting you know they've got the CIA there, they've got intelligence, they've got a NATO warship on their side that's just off the coast. Whoa. And and here I am on my bicycle. (laughs) What was it like sitting in the presidential palace having a dinner with, you know, CIA agents, you know, a ship off the coast, uh, rebellion within the the region? (laughs) Yeah, it's, well, it was surreal, you know. The way I spoke with the the, the president, Ferroli, you know, it's more like, Thank you for welcoming me into your country. And um, look, this is the plan. But but I understand. Look, look, I'll do whatever you say. If you can't say, if we can't go there, I understand. It's and so it's not being. I guess my approach is not being too pushy. Look, I'm here. I'm strong. I'm willing to do it. If if and I'll work with you as a team. You know, this is a chance to actually have a good news story coming out of their country. Um, and, and and I was protected amazingly. And, and I think the Australian, the message from the Australian Somalis was that, you know, um, Australia had welcomed th- them into our country here and and given them all the opportunities. And so we were treated like family, basically. So myself, the cameraman who's actually Czech, and my sister actually came for that last bit. She was in the bulletproof vehicle. It sounds to me like such an almost like a John Le Carre novel in a way. Like obviously, you know, it's it's not it's not a spy thriller necessarily, but just this idea that this this confluence of this incredible human feat mixed with these very chaotic internal politics, lots of external international actors at play as well, and yet the the, the mission, of course, is to try and do something truly special, which which showcases um, the country in in the best possible light. Um, and and allows you to experience it in the best possible light, and, and and that's it's such a special thing, even in such an incredibly chaotic moment. I was kind of, I guess I was up a little bit, but I was I was also as excited about this just this incredible opportunity that they were giving me, that the lengths that they were going to to protect me, 
it was totally surreal and what I had to do was honour it. We had a change of guards, uh, 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 the military unit, and, and the president had loaned us his very own guards to get from Garraway to Cardo those two days. And then they had to go off to the fighting and some came back from the fighting and they were looking after us for the last bit. And in fact, um, that vehicle got ambushed and some of them were killed, so that was pretty horrific. We had these poor guys who had been you know, in, in fighting and they were exhausted, and, but they were so human and they were so lovely. Um, and it was just amazing to see that side of them. And, and they're in Ramadan as well, by the way, which was just so, they were supposed to be fasting and then they couldn't do it. They, 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 we had to get, catch a couple of goats, buy a couple of goats from some herders for them to eat. Um, because they, they couldn't really, they were fading away and they couldn't concentrate. So, yeah. I imagine when you started out on these sorts of expeditions, perhaps you didn't realise quite how much of your uh, experience would come uh, in the form of diplomacy. You know, like I, I imagine if you wanted to, you could have a very successful career in international relations these days with all of the work that you've done with governments and private organisations. And, you know, like it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? But really, when we talk about that sort of diplomacy, all we're talking about is making human connections and facilitating actions. And it, it, it amazes me that you were able to take a bike and go through war-torn Somalia during a point of incredible instability and through these individual friendships and connections and, and uh, small micro-efforts with people, find a way to do that, not just safely, but do it in, in, a, in a way that was really enriching for everyone who was involved as well. Like, that seems such an unlikely thing. You know, when you think about it, it's almost like saying to somebody through the, the middle of World War II, we're going to take a push bike, you know, and roll our way through you know, occupied France or something along those lines. You know, it's like, it's such an, it's not a perfect analogy, of course, but I mean, like, that's the sort of level of danger that we're talking about, you know, a guerrilla war taking place in a country in the middle of Africa with deep instability within its own structures and history. And then here you are, you know, from Western Australia and your bike <laughs> ro rolling through the center. And yet there's... How did I get here? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's, yeah. it's such a beautiful moment and it's such a beautiful story. And in some way it mm. transcends the conflict and, and the uh, instability of, of that particular moment to, to really show what we can all be at our best selves. And, and I love that. Yeah, yeah. look, right through the, the Somalia, but not just there, just about ev everywhere. It was very, very rare there was any issue. I, I can't, you know, I remember in the, maybe the Democratic Republic of Congo, I I'd only was doing a little bit from Kinshasa, uh, and then into Angola, so there was like three days of cycling. Um, and there was one time, you know, I wasn't with a support vehicle and a very shady-looking policeman, you know, stopped me at the edge of a town and wanted to check, you know, I just didn't trust him. And then through the, throughout the conversation, he's, you know, he starts asking, asking me for my passport and, okay, I'm on my own. I'm, so, I'm in, in the DRC. I've got this, you know sunglasses and policemen and suddenly there's about 11 other men f around me and I'm going okay this is where you have to be calm be now it's time to be really strong and firm and not show the moment you show you're scared that that, uh, that would be bad so I kind of and I don't really speak French very well or much I kind of knew what he was asking for but I pretend that I didn't understand for as long as possible um, but, you know, standing, certainly standing tall and then same with all these others around. And then, you know, um, I had to give him my passport. He had to go and check it. I, there was no choice. I, I delayed it as long and then I wasn't going to get away with it. So I did that. And in the meantime, you know, these guys standing around me and one says, do you want, do you want sex? Okay. No, that's not what I do. I looked at him straight in the eye and, and like, um, said, no, that's not what I do. And, and it's, 
it was seemed to be enough. <laughs> um, and then the passport came back and I was off pretty fast. Um, you know, it's like mm, that could have gone horribly wrong. Uh, so that, that was, that's very rare. That's basically that was the only time that that's ever happened, I think. Um, and and I think I handled it right. I, I was just going to say that I, I it, you've done an incredible amount of journeying. Um, it, it's just the sheer number of kilometres that you've put on the board, the distances that you've travelled, the places that you've been to. Um, if anyone can speak with some authority on, on the nature of um, calculated risk, then I think you could speak on it with the, with the most authority. Um, but it's also that, that comment that you make that of all of the experiences that you had, that was probably one of the very few moments in which you felt in any way unsafe. Um, is a testament, I guess, to sometimes how sheltered we are with what we think is okay and what we think isn't okay and what, what we're willing to put ourselves through and what we're not willing to put ourselves through. I think that many people's calculation of, of what is dangerous or what they're willing to do um, is so different to what the actuality of the situation is. You know, like if you can travel all the way across Africa, all the way across Russia, all the way through Central Australia, and you can come out with nothing but really positive stories to tell about it when you're sensible and when you're strong and, and when you're mentally prepared. Um, in some ways, that's such a liberating experience for the rest of us to hear because suddenly I'm thinking to myself, maybe you haven't calculated correctly what you're willing to, to do. You know, maybe you need to be a little bit braver about the things that you're willing to risk. Yeah, see, I, I mean, there's risk in absolutely everything we do. It's just how you deal with it and, and, and trying to get a perspective on what that, that risk is, like, I think probably the riskiest thing that I do is actually riding a bike on a road, by far, than all those things I've just t told you, but by far. But um, there's things that you can't control, so you've got to be able to put them in. So all those interact the stories of interactions, y yeah, sure, but it, yeah, that's just being a normal, decent, hopefully decent person and showing that you're strong and wanting to see people's, you know, see see places and meet people and and creating positive things. And generally people see that. This is, it, it's, um, you know, in the middle of the Lajamanu, the Supplejack Road track, so off, off the Tanami Road in, 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 in the Tanami Desert, you know, the Aboriginal people, you can see the dust coming for, for miles. And even if, they, even if they've been drinking, they'll stop and they'll see how you are and they understand immediately. They actually get what you're doing. Cycling is like having, having, they get that you're trying to feel the land and you're having respect for the land and you're traveling through it. And, and that was always cool to me too, how there was that mutual respect in Central Australia. Um, so it's, it's, Tell me about that trip in 2004 and 2005, because that was a, a different one in a way, like you were in home for one, not traveling somewhere overseas. And you were, uh, you were doing a journey on behalf of the uh, United Nations, uh, Decade of Education and Sustainable Development. So that had a, a different meaning to it as well. What was, what was the preparation and experience of that like? Well, it's really understanding how my own country fits together, because I'd seen other parts. I'd by then cycled right through Europe and across Russia, and I knew I'd changed. But but I wanted to see how my own not how just how Australia matched up, but but really get a feeling f for it. And I knew that travelling by bike was going to do that much more. Um, you know, people sometimes they look at you. You know, they might be in a four wheel drive, and they'll say, "Oh, mad person here." Or there. I think they're mad. <laughs> it's like it's like mad. you know. It's like you're you're cocooned in this vehicle and you're revving the vehicle up and blah, blah, yeah. blah. I think you're you know relative. I'm not sure about that. You know. Um, so it was a great journey, and as um, as I said, you know, I designed it to really explore my own country, not just the. If you go around the edge, the main road around the edge of Australia, it's about fourteen thousand kilometres. That's a good thing to do, but but to really get off the beaten tracks. And uh, I mean, I, I just love the desert. I love the, the, the purity of the desert. And it just, I don't know, it focus, focuses me or anyone on, on life really and what's important, um, whether it's the Namib, whether it's the Sahara, whether it's the Australian deserts. In fact, I'm, my next journey, even though it's Antarctica, which is also a desert, I'm, I'm sort of, Thinking of, I'm thinking I've, I've sort of put on paper a journey I want to do this year, uh, traveling across Australia again, but just 
in, in, in one line from, from east to west, from the most easterly tip to the most westerly tip, which it, it intersects some of the places I've been before, but I'm, you know, because I, all these journeys keep changing me, I'll probably have a different perspective again of my own country. Um, you, know, that it, you know, one builds on the other. You know, what I can do now on a fat bike compared to what I used to do touring, which they're both, you know, they're great, but they're both different. I, I see the world, I see different adventures in getting off the beaten track a bit more. What was your experience? About, what, what do you think you learnt about your own country, Australia, that you didn't know before after you'd completed that trip? Ooh, what did I learn? Um, yeah, it was just really getting a feeling. It was kind of this feeling of, especially a lot of, you know, I'd learnt a lot about the past, many of the past explorers, um, and and you hear their stories, and I wanted, and I was travelling over the same land. And how did I feel about, you know, you hear these stories, is it different now? And it probably is in many ways, but then some of it is just the same. It's been the same for, you know, millennia and millennia. So um, I guess I got a real sense of the age of this, this timelessness of Australia much more, like by going, especially in the out, just this absolute yes. timelessness. Um, I got a, a bit of a... Sh- Shock sometimes visiting some of the Aboriginal communities at the, at the, at the state, and whereas the, the average person was awesome, but these so many of the communities that I visited, it was yeah, it was a bit of a shock, and and it's you know sort of like opening a can of worms as to what, what the answers are, which is really just more self determination. But um, yeah, it's it's we've got two different countries here, so <laughs> all, all all into one. Um, so that was a bit of a shock. We think about this in the sense of healthcare all the time. You know, is is the tyranny of distance? Is is how do you uh, accommodate the fact that we have such a vast land on which we all live, and yet we want to try and standardise in a way people's access to all of the services that we would like people to have access to? Um, and technology is is in some ways bridging that gap in a way that we were never able to before. But of course, it's imperfect, and and we're always trying to struggle to figure out what the best way of doing that is. Um, it's interesting, though, because I, I, in some ways, meeting people on their land in, in their place, particularly uh, people who have such a, a strong connection to it and history with it, uh, is such an illuminating experience in, in so many ways. Um, and I, I sometimes feel like we, uh, we miss out on so much of that in the way in which we, we grow up in Australia. You know, it's di- difficult to um, uh, understate just how powerful and rich a tradition is to have the oldest continuous uh, civilization on earth um, at our doorsteps and yet to be so uh, underexposed to it. I remember when I was first investigating the background of uh, Brisbane, which is where I grew up, uh, I'd had no formal education on the Turable people who were the First Nations people on this land. And at my first introduction to the Turable people, who at a certain point in our history uh, were thought to have been extinct, um, which in itself is an extraordinary story, um, was when I was doing my own personal reading just around some of the history of the city outside of any formal education and reading the reminiscences of um, uh, Andrew Petrie, who was sort of one of the first uh, private English citizens who'd come to reside and plan in Brisbane after whom the suburb Petrie is now named after. And his son was the first child to grow up in Brisbane and he spoke the terrible language fluently because he grew up with all of the children who were here at that time, and he was raised very much by the First Nations people, and um, as well as being a part of the settlement. And he tells this ex- these extraordinary stories uh, of these cultural journeys that were taking place between different clans and groups um, among what we now know as Queensland, and 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 some of the uh, the heritage that was there and and the traditions that were there, um, I had never come across before. just had absolutely no idea about the the structures and nature of of those cultures and communities and the richness of it. And I I remember just being so blown away by what I wasn't exposed to, what what I hadn't come across, even though I'd spent my entire life growing up in this particular place, literally in the centre of where this had been taking place for hundreds of thousands of years before me. And I sometimes wonder whether or not that's because we've become so blind to that in everyday life. Whereas when you take yourself out of that for a second, you say, no, I'm going to just be in this place, doing this sort of journey, 
I'm going to focus on the area and the people that I'm with around me and, and where they've come from and, and how I can connect with that. It's almost like taking that step away from normality in order to see the what's behind the curtain. And I love the fact that you've been able to demonstrate that because I think it's something that many people can do in their own small way, but we just choose not to. Growing up, education, especially about Indigenous culture, was just woefully uh, inadequate. And, and so, you know, finished school, finished university and really just came out in that respect, quite sheltered, you know, that was just the system I've come out of, you know, and my family, especially on my father's side, they're all very much some of the earliest settlers in Western Australia and pioneers, but European, obviously. Um, and so, you know, you know, I had a sense of the, their history and, and you get told these stories, but, but the Aboriginal people didn't count then. <laughs> it was like, it's like, you know, I, I, some I know were treated them well but there was just like certainly the attitude of say my father's parents you know that would shock people now but I think it was pretty normal and it, you know th then um, the culture's changed a lot but I think what I can hopefully do is by telling stories and just hoping to break down barriers that way a little bit more and just just helping people in, inspire people to go out to explore for themselves because that's the way to really understand um, or understand more. Mm. That meaning is so important, isn't it? And each of your journeys has, has had a meaning to it. It's had a deeper purpose. It, it hasn't just been a physical endurance task, though that by itself is inspiring and, and has a role. But you've specifically chosen to either support a certain mission or educate yourself about a place that you're going to or in some way highlight um, a project or task that, that should be highlighted or, or given more attention to. C can you talk a little bit about what motivated you one to do that and, and two, how you choose to do that? Because that's actually quite a large responsibility when you're you're bringing a lot of attention to something to choose what it is you want to bring attention to. Mm. Well, it all sort of, you know, you would, the big change was meeting Robert Swan, polar explorer. And before, you know, I just say cycled and planned and things and, and I was just traveling for my own purposes. But but he sort of gave me the, just that confidence. He said, you know, there's so much more value to what you're doing than simply riding a bike. And, um, and I pretty much immediately saw that and thought, oh, yeah, I can do this and I can, you know. And so ever since then, I've always tried to support people or places that I've traveled through or, 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 t or bring awareness by, by my stories and through education programs um and and now these days now i'm getting better at the film i certainly had a go at writing first um you know each of those things are, are a whole different skill set that they're quite hard for me you know so I, I i put just as much effort at least or more into that because because that's to realize the value of each expedition and then that helps motivate me to do something else because then i realize it's 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 a much stronger purpose and it's 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 all very well and it's such a privilege to go off and and do these things and and but but to be able to inspire others that's actually what i get out of bed for but you know that's that's the most rewarding thing you know I remember after that Australian expedition I was talking to um, students in Ballarat and Clarendon College up in um, Ballarat in Victoria and um, on the back of that two senior girls felt very strongly about um, the plight of the refugees and, and the way that they're treated in this country and they they, they organized a, a cycle journey if they got themselves on local radio they 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 actually did the journey and and that was all on the back of a story that that you know uh, my story about cycling around Australia and so I was just like that made me feel amazing and and uh, when I get that kind of feedback um, and they're not the only ones there's, there's a lot of other ones you know um, it's a great a uh, lady called uh, Sarah Kent, who is a, a world champion pursuit cyclist, and she she read an article I wrote about my African expedition, and she contacted me and she said, "I want to do something that's much bigger than my sport." And um, she missed out on getting, going to the Olympics, I think, and she threw herself into this. And I, when she came to Melbourne and her father, I gave them advice, I helped them, I guided them as to doing something that I thought 
you know, they hadn't been to Africa before and they wanted to do this. And I, so I set them up with World Bicycle Relief. I mean, she's, she's you know, a very well, uh, quite a well-known person in cycling. She became an ambassador. She, she and her father did this journey. Um, and, and again, that she set up a website and that was all on the back of something I wrote. I thought, yeah, <laughs> that's what, that's where the things multiply. You know, she called it the ripple effect, but, but it's absolutely right. So, so the, you know, the more stories and the more feedback I get when people, they don't have to do exactly what I do and it doesn't have to be cycling, but, um, um, you know, that makes me feel pretty, pretty good. I can only imagine the satisfaction that you must get from from seeing those sorts of ripples of uh, mm. inspiration that then then feed out. But also, of course, you know, in in some ways, that's it's such an empowering thing for those individuals. It's not just about the courses that they support, but it's also setting them up for uh, that self belief that you talked about at the beginning of our conversation about pushing yourself and your mental toughness and realizing that you're capable of so much more than you sometimes think or that other people are willing to tell you that you could do. Um, and for you, having that inspiration from Robin Swan, uh, Robert Swan at the beginning of your journeys was such a, a, a turning point that you mentioned, or I imagine you were that person for them. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's like like what Robert Swan did for me, you know, now that's 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 multiplying out a little bit. Um, I hope a lot more. <laughs> and that's why then I need to get the the media coverage a bit more and, and the, these kind of things. You know, it's not just for me, but it's actually because then then I can actually do more with what with my my other skills of of, of expeditions and 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 then I can make more of it 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 can be a very powerful tool to to um, achieve the real things that I want to achieve so this is where I'm, I'm not an expert in, in sort of that final bit you know of finding the path for these things and and, and um, okay yeah. I, I have to I have to say that I, I However hard it may be, I doubt that it's as hard as negotiating a, a way through Somalia during the middle of a guerrilla war. Um, so somehow I feel like you're going to make it. <laughs> no, there are different types of challenges, you know. So um, yes, and 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 you know, convincing someone to invest in what I do, or, or invest in a film, or, or or you know, you know, they need you know value for their investment. So there's all these extra things that I have to deal with. Um, and sometimes my head's spinning a little bit by the time I'm going to bed. Uh, but we all have our, you know, I, I live alone, so I um, I can afford those kind of times a little bit more than, than other people, whereas they'll have other challenges. So, you know, there's all sorts of challenges out there. <laughs> I just want to touch on it briefly because I realise that you, you've lived such an extraordinary life so far and, and, and are also yet to do so many things. But we haven't even touched on your professional tennis career. Um, which is sort of amazing when you think about what you've been able to achieve in real tennis. Because one, I'd, I'd like you to just start by describing what real tennis what is real for some people is. because I don't want people to be confused. And, and yes. I think it's important, particularly in Australia, where maybe the profile isn't as big as it is in the UK to understand it. But two, then just to talk us through what you've been able to achieve in that world. Sure. So so real tennis is the original racket sport, actually, the original tennis. Um, in fact, its, it's correct term is tennis, but because of the other game that you all watch, the Australian Open, etc., um, uh, we call it real tennis, also known as jeu de pomme in France and court tennis in the US. So in France, it's called jeu de pomme, which means game of the palm, because that's about its origins. So the game would have started with people using their hands um, on the streets, you know, hitting a ball, maybe a piece of cloth over a barrier. It evolved on the streets and then in monasteries. So that the architecture of a real tennis court is very similar to the courtyard of a monastery. It's asymmetrical. It has a sloping roof, a bit like a veranda that goes around three sides, that the, the lowest part's about eight feet off the ground. Uh, you, you, you basically hit the ball over a net with a racket and a ball, but the net's different, the racket's different, and the ball's different. Um, so this, the net looks saggy. It's the same height as a tennis net in the middle. It's three feet in the middle, but it's it's five feet at the sides. Um, uh, the racket is made of wood. It's very, very strong, and it has to be so um, because the balls made by hand by professionals like me um, is more like a, a, a baseball in that it's, it's very hard. So the strings and the racket have to be double, double as tight as, as a lawn tennis racket. In fact, machines can't do it tight enough. We have to do them by hand. So we have to physically make the balls physically, which are 
about like a baseball, say a little bit smaller than a tennis ball, lawn tennis ball, but not much. Um, but they're rock hard. They're made of cloth and things inside. So that you get hit, you know about it. Um, uh, the rackets are uh, asymmetrical. They're the shape of your hand to replicate how the game started, but also because the main shot in real tennis is a cut shot. So the ball has backspin. When the ball hits, hits the back wall with backspin, it then cuts down, so it makes it harder to um, harder to get the ball back. So it's, it's a bit like a mix between tennis and squash and chess. Um, so the rules are, are similar to tennis, but there's a few more complexities to it. And tell us a little bit about what was the highest rank that you achieved worldwide in, in real tennis? In, in what, uh, uh, two, two, yeah. That's amazing to me. That, that you <laughs> it's a small able to... sport, but... But yeah, it's it's. Um, but being able to do these exhibitions, Kate, at the same time as pursuing a professional tennis career early on, and then continuing that to the point where you reach number two in the world—that's that's incredible. Yeah, they, they kind of complement each other in different ways. Um, but when I discovered real tennis, it was just after I finished my Russian expedition. I was working in London, um, and I didn't, you know, I had a pedigree of a lot of different sports, in particular squash, cricket, hockey. Um, athletics didn't help, but all the others probably did. So I picked it up pretty quickly and, and not knowing how good I got in the space of a couple of years, I was just playing the other people there at the club. I, I was a member of staff, not a member of the club. And so two years later, I became a professional and there isn't big bucks in real tennis. Uh, to be a professional, especially for women, it's, it was very rare. So actually, I've been really at the forefront of opening the game up more for women, um, which is a pretty much a male-dominated sport. Uh, but there's many more women women who play now. Um, so, um, yeah, becoming a pro was the first time I'd really put all my eggs in one basket as far as a sport goes, and I just really was keen to see how far I could go with it. So I was already really one of the, one of the better women. But, but then, you know, like anything, to get very good, you have to – train and focus and, and so for 10 years I didn't do any other expeditions I was just working on my tennis but um, uh, I, uh, just as I became a pro just after I, I had a really bad knee, knee injury uh, where I sheared a little piece of cartilage off the head of my femur you'll understand that's that's a very bad injury to have because you can't fix it um, uh, so my knee is very stable but I had to manage this, so I've had a lot of surgery and a lot of – I've had very little time when I can actually um, train with no restriction. So it's always been about adapting for me. Um, so naturally I'd be quick around the court and powerful and strong, but 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 then I'd be cut down all the time. So, so mentally that, that really – you know, competing at the top level, that wasn't great. <laughs> Um, I can see yeah. where your resilience was born, you know, in a way. Like, obviously, it was already there inherently on what you'd achieved up until that point. But then to have an injury like that and then to still be able to pursue that sport to the highest level and then continue with that sort of injury uh, while also doing these sorts of expeditions, that's it, it's almost unfathomable, really. Like, when, when people can easily underestimate what that sort of injury actually means. I think most people don't really understand that when you lose that cartilage, you don't get it back. Um, there's no way that we can replace that. You can mitigate it to a certain degree, but the trauma on the knee joint as a consequence of not having that surface on which it can articulate anymore, at least not to the same degree as it was, that's a chronic issue. And that's that's very hard to, to manage even when you're not doing extraordinary trips across vast different distances. Yeah, it's a serious injury. I've had two cartilage grafts. I've had I've been kind of lucky to have some of the best technology possible at the time, uh, not in Australia, in France, actually, uh, the longer I can leave it the better the technology because then you know I want to be able to do what I do you know if I it might change things it might help things but it might not so so let's see what I, see how far I can go with a, with all of my knees first <laughs> I feel like you've done pretty well so far okay <laughs> I, I can't see that stopping anytime soon I'm so excited for your trip to Antarctica we, we were talking recently to a uh, one of the doctors who's down on Davis Station or just about to go down to Davis Station is the Antarctic Dr. John Cherry, who's an extraordinary guy in his own right. And he was talking about some of the preparations that go into um, um, uh, an expedition, uh, a research expedition down to Davis Station and, and what's involved in that and what planning is involved in that. It, it staggers my mind to think about what's involved in a single person cycling through Antarctica. 
um, or even supported with a group of people around you helping what, what the logistics are in, involved in something like that. But I'm just so excited to see what you're able to achieve while doing it. Yeah, thank you. Well, I think in Antarctica, again, as I mentioned before, it's the cold, you know, it, it's, it's, it's totally foreign to me. So um, knowing what it's like uh, to cycle on very in very soft conditions or or not cycle and push uh, understanding what a couple of other cyclists have done in Antarctica um, my discussions a lot with Eric Phillips you know I, I, it's not realistic for me to be trying to do that unsupported so it needs to be supported which makes it expensive which is the reason basically why I haven't done it yet uh, so the, the idea of doing the journey a journey as long as the one I'm planning with the minimum would be 1800 kilometers. Uh, the maximum, add another thousand kilometres on that. It's it's more dependent dependent on funding. You know, it's not a new route or anything, but it is breaking ground with what can be done on a bike. You know, I think we can. We're in a position now. Have uh, you know a global TV series coming out? Um, it's going to be seen by hundreds of millions of people, which is cool. Um, you know, all those things mean that my marketability should be much higher than it was before I started this. Um, this, this sort of uh, plan. So, you know, one, one way or another, I'll, you know, I have to find a, I'm going to find a way. Um, so, perseverance, yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, I hope that uh, lots of people from the Risk Equation podcast come and, and donate or contact you. I, I think that the, the people that listen to the show, I, I suspect, are, are interested in these sorts of things. And, and so I'm hopeful that you'll uh, you'll have inspired some people today with, with your story and they'll be looking forward to seeing your productions when they finally uh, reach fruition in the, in the coming months as well. Thanks very much. 